This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Each semester, the Department of Humanities and Communication at Trine University presents the Humanities Symposia. This symposia is a lecture series in which faculty in the humanities and guest speakers share their current work both with students at the university and with members of the community. Christine Olding received her PhD in Rhetoric and Composition from Kent State University and is currently the chair of the Humanities and Communication Department at Trine. She started our symposia this semester with the presentation, Baby You're No Good, Female Musician's Rhetorical Self-Agency in the Rock and Roll Archives. So I promise this presentation is going to be more interesting than my title. So just know that it will be. So if you were to become famous one day, if anybody in this room were to become famous one day, would you have the paperwork or the technology necessary to depict what your process was for creating that thing? Would you have in your possession the lineage of your works? These are questions that matter to someone like me, an archival researcher. Archives are places of wonderment and discovery, but they can also be places full of frustration and discontent. The saying, never watch a kettle waiting for it to boil, is one that rings very true for an archival researcher. You can never expect what you're going to find. So this presentation aims to demonstrate the archive's ability to shine and shed new light on a very old issue. And that issue is women's inability to shake the inevitable gaze of social expectation when composing their narrative of rhetorical self-agency. And that is a lot of words that basically mean, I am looking at how women are misrepresented and misrepresent themselves within the archives at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This project, like I just said, was born out of research that I was actually doing for my dissertation back in 2016 on sonic composing processes of musicians. I looked at Les Paul. For those of you who don't know who Les Paul is, he was the inventor of the solid body electric guitar and also was the, in very big air quotes, also coined as the inventor of modern recording technology. And when I was working on this and looking at the stuff that Les Paul had, I was told by the professors in my program that I needed to find a woman from the archives that could complement my findings from Les Paul, which was much easier said than done. And so what happened was I went to the archives and I found that all of the archival material that was housed on site at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Library and Archives, which for those of you who don't know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a museum in Cleveland, Ohio. It came to its fruition in 1996 with the first Rock Hall class. I'm gonna get into a little bit of the history of that, but I just wanted to make sure that you guys have a context for what it is I'm talking about. So. All of the ar archival material is housed on site at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Library and Archives. However, 
The library and archives also possess a digital library. So if you, like none of us, none of us live in Northeast Ohio, but all of us can go online and actually see what is housed within the archives. So the archive website is available to the public. It allows the researchers, so it allowed myself to kind of search what was there and allowed me to see what was there before I physically went into the space. And it was during this process of searching that I kind of began to notice a really alarming trend among the female musicians that had been inducted into the Hall of Fame. They had a significant less amount of material than their male counterparts. In total, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has inducted only, I'm saying this only, 38, now 44 women out of 351. That's 12% of the inductees have been female. And that includes both solo and parts of bands. These are all of the people that are inducted either solo or, or as part of a band. As you'll see on that list, only two people, only two women are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame more than once. And that is Tina Turner, who was just inducted solo this past year, and Stevie Nicks, who was also just inducted solo artist. Other than that, every woman is only on here once. Most of them are a part of a band. This last row right here, this is also done in uh, chronological order. So someone like Nina Simone was just inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Whitney Houston was just inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, so what's interesting to me about this is not only the lack of representation, but who was inducted when and who was inducted why, essentially. So this is when, when I, when I put all this together, this is when I really started to think about this lack of representation of women. And I began, I began kind of thinking, well, okay, so there's not that many that are inducted, but maybe they donated a lot of stuff. So the library and archives at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, everything that's housed in there is donated, either by estates or people or collectors. None of it is technically quote unquote bought. It is all donated. Most of it's donated by estates or artists themselves. But the fun thing about that is that any musician can donate materials. So it doesn't even have to be somebody that's inducted, and we're gonna get into that in a second. I started looking at every single person on this list, every single band on this list, I looked at through the archives for the digital library. And I quickly began to realize that they did not donate a ton of stuff. In fact, most of them didn't donate anything. And the things that they had donated were significantly different than that of their male counterparts. So what I was noticing was that women were actually donating things that kind of perpetuated what we as a society expect of female artists. They weren't donating their actual music they weren't donating all of the weird newspaper clippings that I had found within Les Paul stuff. They were donating pictures of themselves. They were donating album cover sleeves. 
they weren't donating anything that kind of demonstrated that they were more than just something nice to look at. And so what I kind of discovered with this is that, I'm gonna skip through all that. There were four women that donated what I'm calling, quote unquote, a significant amount. And a significant amount was more than just one thing. So 44 women inducted. Four of those women donated more than just one thing that was not also included in another donation that was from a male artist. So someone like Whitney Houston, for instance, who was just inducted in 2020, she had four things. Three of them were reels of her performing with men. So Beverly Ross, she is not inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So one of the women that has the most representation in this space is not even in the thing that it's housed in, which I know like none of you seem excited about, but it's kind of messed up. That would be like coming here to the school, to this university, and the person that does the most isn't even a student here. They're just some random person that likes to come to classes. So the person doing the most is just a woman that isn't even good enough, quote unquote, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's eyes to even be inducted. She's the one that has the most stuff to study. All of it was supplied by her. So, but the thing that was weird about Beverly Ross is she still only had one one foot by one foot box, which if any of you have ever seen a cashier's box that you, they often like have in movies and business settings, that's it. That's all that there was. And it wasn't even full. The only reason it was that size is because she included one thing of sheet music for her famous song, Lollipop, which came out in the 50s, and it was just too long to fit in another sized box. So within this box, within Beverly Ross's stuff, she had sheet music, she had handwritten lyrics, she had music composition, she had jingles, she had correspondence, she had financial records, she had photography, photographs. Again, her collection was the most extensive and also the most diverse because she had more than just one type of thing. Miss Ross also donated all of the items herself, which I think is important. Um, she was able to provide a more comprehensive collection that way because she donated it all herself. So for instance, with Les Paul, all of his stuff was donated after his passing. So he didn't have a say in what was actually put into the archives, whereas Beverly Ross could kind of create her own story with the items that she donated. So she kind of fell into what I call a willing and able participant, meaning she was willing and able to donate these things. But still, the things that she donated only gave me a snapshot of her musical career and not the entirety of it. The next person I looked at, again, was, is not inducted, Leslie Gore. Uh, Leslie Gore was an American singer and writer 
She was most famous in the 1960s. Uh, she came to fame with her song, It's My Party, which some of you are in here like, I have no idea who this woman is. I have no idea what that song is. But I guarantee that if you Googled it and you played a clip of it, you would recognize the song because it's played in a lot of films and commercials. And the materials that she had archived included one file folder, folder and one shared box, meaning she didn't even have a box of her own. She shared it with someone else. And it really only housed the original sheet music for It's My Party and two original arrangements of other songs, as well as a movie poster. So like Beverly Ross, she also donated these items to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on her, her own accord. So again, she was able to create her own narrative of what it was like for her to be a female musician during that time. But the thing that I think speaks volumes is just the sheer amount of it. It's not a whole lot. For somebody to do archival research, for those of you who are like, what is this woman talking about? To do archival research and to do it well. So with Les Paul, I looked at probably thousands of documents. There were five gigantic boxes of donated materials that took me 24 hours over the span of weeks to go through all of it to collect enough data to actually say anything. This is one envelope and half of a box. I couldn't even write a whole paper on just one of these women because there wasn't enough material. So the fact is, is that for some reason, these women feel that what they had to say and their representation of self within the rock and roll world was not worth studying. And you can see that by the amount of stuff that, they, that they've donated. So next up, we have Patti Smith. Patti Smith was inducted in 2007. The items were donated by her mother. She had one box and one file folder. And in those boxes were contents of this collection were clippings, correspondence with her family, artwork and drawings, handwritten poetry, some lyrics, as well as photographs. The correspondence mainly consisted of postcards sent by Patti Smith to her family while she was on, on tour and depicted her as a loving mother and daughter and not really what she kind of stood for in the eyes of music. So those of you who don't know who Patti Smith is, Patti Smith is an American singer and songwriter known for her honest poetic lyrics and garage rock inspired approach to music. She's one of the pioneering women in especially like the early punk movement. Um, and so her kind of persona within music is kind of this revolutionary, um, really like strong woman type essence. And then the things that were donated to the Rock Hall demonstrate kind of the stereotypical aspects of womanhood, of being a mother and being a wife. And so it kind of goes against what her music and what her persona of musicianship went or was really, um, she, unlike Gore and unlike Ross, she was not creating the narrative. She was not creating the story through her donations because they weren't donated by her. So because of that, 
she, I can't really say if she would want that side of her personality to be shown and to be studied because she's not necessarily a willing and able participant. She might have given her mom permission, but it's also very possible that she did not give her mom permission to donate these items. So when you're studying something like this, as an archival researcher, you have to be very aware of the fact that someone like Patty Smith might not even want you to be studying them and to be looking at them in this way. So you have to keep that in mind as well. This was by far the most interesting um, archival data collection that I looked at was the material from Janice Joplin. Uh, her archivable materials were actually bought at a private auction, and then they were supposedly, and I say supposedly in very big air quotes, and that's going to be explained in a second, ver verified by the seller to all be written by Joplin herself. I use the term supposedly because each piece of handwritten material that I looked at was completely different lettering. And it wasn't just like, oh, she wrote in cursive one day. It was like, oh, this was written by a completely different person. And so when I looked at that, I originally thought it was because of possible drug influences that she was under. Janice Joplin um, sadly died of a heroin overdose. She was a heroin addict. She was a notorious partier in the late 60s until she died in 1970. And so I kind of looked at it as it was possible that these different pieces of writing were done in different states of inebriation. And then I actually reached out to her manager who weirdly enough emailed me back. And if those of you, how many of you know who Janice Joplin is? Okay, it's better than I thought. For those of you who don't know who she is, she is one of the foundational women in rock and roll history. She really set apart what it meant to be a female musician. She set apart what it meant to be a rocker. She was unapologetically herself. She had an amazing voice that really carried the essence of blues and blues rock that had been started by the black community. And she really brought it to the forefront in a way that kind of celebrated the essence and the history of it while also celebrating the essence and the beginning of the counterculture movement. So for me, when I heard back from Janice Joplin's road manager, I almost fainted because this was somebody, to me, that played a huge role in popular music and popular music history. And so what I found out when I emailed him, as I said, I asked him two questions. One, do you think this stuff is good for me to study? And this is what I want to look at. And two, is this stuff actually written by her? He responded back with, do not study this, because none of this was written by her. This was written by people in her band. This was written by roadies. She did not write songs. So all of the song lyrics that were in that box that were verified 
that were supposedly bought and verified by the seller that they had all been written by Janis Joplin were in fact not. So then I came into this issue of, okay, great. So now I have all of this material and some of it's not even legitimate. So that's another issue is the fact that one, she couldn't have donated any of these items. She died 25 years before she was inducted. The items that were there were verified improperly. So she's not only is not a willing and able participant in her own creation of story of self, but the stuff I was looking at, though very interesting and very provided me with an insight into Joplin's life on the road, was not necessarily represent, representative of her as a musician. What I did look at that was really cool was I looked at and listened to actually the original recordings of some of her albums. And that was really the only thing that I could verify that came directly from Joplin. That and, I shouldn't say that was the only thing, that and there was also a picture album that she carried with her on tour of pictures of like her and her family and throughout her youth. Um, but anything that was written, I couldn't really say was hers because it was all different types of weird stuff going on. So this is what I kind of found out. That the depictions of these four women through their archive materials left me even more confused and more frustrated because they didn't give me any answers. Instead, they provided me with more questions. On the screen of the digital database, it seemed as if these women's these women were kind of prescribing to a social expectation of what it meant to be a woman, providing things that kind of fell into stereotypes of a woman musician, aka only showing things that kind of demonstrated their beauty at the time, or in the case of Patty Smith, her mom donated things that kind of contradicted what it meant for her to be this kind of revolutionary female musician. And in the case of somebody like Janis Joplin, it really kind of made me question the legitimacy of the archives. <laughs> if I was able to just send an email to the road manager and he was like, yep, nope, that's, that's not cool. <laughs> that's not right. Um, it made me question kind of where I was getting this information and how they were verifying that information. There were just way too many outside factors and influences, right? So they weren't really writing their own narrative of what it meant to be a woman in music, what it meant to be a woman in rock and roll, what it meant to be a part of popular culture. They were letting other people dictate their story for them. And so I can safely say, after looking at all of this stuff, that sadly, places like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Library and Archives have a very skewed and frankly incorrect perception of the impact of women on rock and roll and on popular culture. When I compared what I found with, again, with Les Paul, who, how many of you in this room have heard of Les Paul? So significantly less than those of you that had heard of Janis Joplin. 
he had probably 50 times the stuff, amount of stuff. Very influential, don't get me wrong, right? Very, very influential. But does he have as much of an, uh, as much of an influence on popular culture and our social perception of rock music as Janis Joplin does? Or a Patti Smith? Or any of the 44 women that I listed? Does he matter more than all of them? No. So why does he have 50 times the amount of stuff? Right? So part of the issue as an archivist, or an archival researcher, is coming to reality that when you look at stuff like this, you might come into with these questions of, cool, like I'm gonna look at a female musician and see how amazing she is and see how she did this. But in reality, our society, I hate to break it to you if you didn't know, they don't really care. And this kind of signifies that and solidifies that. So we have this information now, so what can we do with it? There's lots of different things we can do with it. Every year, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducts a class. They have, quote unquote, a thousand rock experts that vote on this, but they're starting to do more and more um, kind of broader audience votes that they actually take into account. You can look at what is available online now. You can look at different female musicians' own archives, their family histories. You can find more about them doing your own research, looking at your own things than you could ever find about them from a place that is supposed to house all of that information, which is really depressing. So, sadly, I started off this research wondering if female musicians that were housed in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame library and archives prescribed to the social gaze or the gaze of social expectation of what it means to be a woman, I was only able to answer half of that question because only four of the women that I looked at there's only four women that had enough stuff for me to look at, and only half of them donated it themselves. And the two people that did donate it themselves, again, they weren't inducted. So I didn't even have enough information to answer my original question. So sadly, again, the one place that we are supposed to go to to find out about the history of rock and roll, the influence that it has had on pop culture and society, is completely skewed towards the male perspective. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.